Hi, my name is Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn, and in July of 1990, I died. What is financial sobriety? Well, first, I'm Jim Gebhardt. Oh, I'm Matthew Grishman. That's good. We should introduce ourselves. And this podcast is all going to be about three relationships that really, when you stop and you think about them, you don't think they go together. But it's your relationship you have with money. It's the relationship you have with people who mean the most to you. And ultimately, the relationship you have with yourself. So I might imagine that those three relationships are somewhat wrapped together. That when one gets a little out of whack, perhaps it has an effect on the others. Stick around and you'll find out. I've been looking forward to today for a long time. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Ace has been teasing us is probably the word that comes to mind Yeah, with our guest that's in studio today. Nice. And while we've never met her message and her work and her life's mission, just they speak to me. Yeah. It is always so amazing how timing just seems to happen because we've been talking about having this particular guest in studio for, what, a year? Yeah. Maybe more? At least. Yet, here we are, and it's today. <laughs> it's here. And as I think is so often the case, it's right on time. Well, it happened when it was supposed to happen. Happened when it was supposed to happen. Yeah. My mother would always say stuff like that, and it would it would annoy the bejesus out of me. <laughs> and she would say stuff like, you know, everything happens for a reason, son. Like, I'd, I'd go try out for a golf tournament, and I would miss by a stroke. Right. Well, everything happens for a reason, son. And under my breath, I would leave the room cursing a blue streak. <laughs> or she'd say, you know, everything has its time and place. You know, the timing of things are not always under your control. Oh, my goodness. Enough with the psycho babble, Mom. But now, as I'm, I'll classify myself as a mature adult. Yeah, adult's fine. Oh, my God, was she spot on. <laughs> All those little truisms have now come to play in a way where... It just it blows my mind. So my my gratitude since I was you're, ask since, you, you're, since you're too busy what's being silent. What what are you listening grateful for to me? Today? I am just so grateful to have our guest in studio. The timing of her message and what she does couldn't be better. The world is off. It's rocker. Yeah, but you and I are both wearing blue today. So well, I'm, that's what I'm grateful for. I'm not blue though. <laughs> I should be wearing pink. Right. Because I just I feel the combination of our conversations with some, some of our last few guests uh, and how this is also kind of in sequence with uh, David Woods Bartley, who helped us with the past two episodes. Yeah. It just it, it it's courageous work on our part. And I'm glad that as a couple of, you know, financial yucks that we're talking about heavy, messy, dark stuff against a time and place in our world that is very dark and heavy. Well, we're just bringing the reality of what conversations are like inside of our offices. I mean, I, I think there's this uh, misunderstanding about what guys like you and I do for a living. And although we're it's in— It's a slide rule. Yeah. Give me a break. Right. It's an abacus. Do you have enough? Uh-huh. You don't? Oh. Well, go get it. Right. And then come back and, and see And then me. come back. Right. Right. That was, my, that was my conversation at 9 o'clock this morning. Well, that's how we were trained. How are you different? The, the prospective client point blank asked me— Oh, right. You had that How are today. you different— than most financial advisors. Did you tell them we have a podcast? I had to bite my tongue. Oh. Because I, I was going to do a... You a, didn't have enough time. No, no, no. I was going to blurt out laughing. Oh. Like, I was going to go... <laughs> sorry, into the mic. That's what I love about what we're doing here is that we are 
challenging the conventional thinking of what a traditional financial podcast is. Or what a, a traditional conversation about money and life and retirement and all, all these different things that we associate with money and financial advice. It's messy. It is. It is. And, and there's a lot I, more to it than money. And you and I are very comfortable getting messy. Yes. And having messy conversations. Yes. So I will zip it, lock it, put it in my pocket and <laughs> ask you what you're grateful for today. <laughs> well, that is probably the longest opening gratitude monologue you've ever had. Thank so you very much. You're, you're, you're feeling good today. Thank you for asking. Some of it's the caffeine. Okay. Well, I'm glad I brought you that second cup oh, of coffee. This is just what I needed. Well, you didn't respond to my text. I texted you from Starbucks, said, hey, do you want a cup of coffee? Because I was answering you... questions on why are we different than other financial firms. <laughs> there you go. So I just brought it. I love it. All right. We'll keep you caffeinated. What am I grateful for today? <sighs> wow. You all right? Yeah. Well, it's been heavy lately. It's been heavy. We've got some stuff coming up next week that's heavy again. And despite some of the personal heaviness we're feeling and everything that's going on in the world, what I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for this morning was just opening my eyes up and being alive and being sober in every aspect of my life. I'm just, I'm grateful to have all my senses be aware of what's going on around me. And I'm especially grateful, much to what you were sharing with our guest in studio today. I'm, I'm going to be a little broader with that. I'm, ex I'm especially grateful for Joyce, who's with us here today. I'm, I'm grateful for the people who have shown up in our lives, especially the last few years. I, I feel like a broken record because every time I come in here, I feel gratitude for this incredible tribe of people that I wish I could take credit for and say that you and I have surrounded ourselves with, but it feels more authentic to call it what it is, which is these people showing up in our lives. I mean, we didn't go out and find you, Ace. We didn't go I out did, and, did. and find Joyce. They're, I did. They just cut, you did? Yeah, I, I put a thing on Indeed. Oh, it's not like a Where's Waldo puzzle and no. it was a Where's Ace puzzle? No, but oh. I, found, I found them. You did? Yeah. Nice. I thought I'd tell you now since we're oh. three years into this. Oh, of course. Oh, so now you tell me. Yeah, I, I just, I'm incredibly grateful for the people in our lives, especially with what's going on in the world today and the amount of heaviness and darkness that exists in the world today. You know, you, you and I used to walk around with those little orange bracelets on our wrist that said congruency. Remember those things? I do. That you had made? I do. And what was, you know, I haven't worn mine in a long time because I haven't felt I needed the reminder of what it means to live congruently in my life where I'm at home and I'm one person, I'm at work and I'm another person, I'm coaching a basketball team and yet I'm a third person. And what's been so cool is to watch how comfortable I'm starting to become just being me because of the people who now seem to be in my life. It's, it's so cool because those people tend to be people who kind of accept me where I'm at and take me for who I am and they're not trying to change me and turn me into something I'm not. And that's a reasonably new thing for me. So the amount of gratitude I have for it is huge, huge. Awesome. So we've got a lot to do today. Yeah. We've got a lot to talk about. Hopefully we can get it in before the summer's out. We've got maybe a few episodes coming out of this conversation that we're about to have, we've got a really special guest in studio today. Before we bring Joyce in to start the conversation, let's just kind of recap where we've been, what we've been talking about. 
I mean, risk. Well, Roth IRAs are really something you want to put most of your money in. Well, I was going to go to annuities. I thought you were talking about annuities recently. Well, we can take the money out of the Roth and, and put, put it, it in, in the annuity. The best annuity. And then we're good for life. Yeah. And the, and the compliance disclaimer is that is complete and utter sarcasm. <laughs> good compliance disclaimer. Right. No, I mean, we've, we've been talking about all the heaviness, all the darkness that, that is out there today. And and the risk, right? The risk associated with all of the let, heaviness and darkness. And if you'd let me finish, Never. the risk Never. that is out there today, Ooh. whether it be longevity risk, whether it be interest rate risk, whether it be inflation. inflation. Yeah. I'm driving here today. I, I get it in the Bay Area where I live. It's, you know, cuckoo expensive. But I got news for all of our friends in Sacramento. Here in upstate California? It's not, it's not pretty news. The Chevron, two blocks away, Sitting at the traffic light, just observing what's around me. Seven dollars and nine cents a gallon. We crack seven and sack for premium. Nice. Six ninety nine for eighty seven and eighty nine. I thought that was interesting. There was no differentiation. Hmm. I was speechless. Welcome to Upstate California, where prices are just as good as yours. Wow. Yeah. That just blew my mind. Yeah. So all these risk conversations that we've been having. There, there's a theme to it, and the, and part of the theme to talking about these oogie, messy, uncomfortable things is, A, awareness. Yes. Right? You and I talk a lot about blind spots. So often in our, in our private practice with clients, that's one of the things that we help people do is see things they can't see themselves because they're in the middle yeah. of the vortex. Yeah, it's fish swimming in water. You can't see the you water when you're swimming it. in it. Right. These risk conversations are meant to engage our audience in what it, what they're swimming in, whether they know it or not. Sure. But we're always trying to provide some solutions. So the conversations with well, David and, Woods Bartley. And how it affects them, not just financially. This, oh. this is, again, a differentiator where I think you and I are having some fun right now with this, is that risk in the marketplace as it traditionally relates to money is so much bigger, right? How does the risk that we're seeing in the world today financially affect our relationship with people how does it affect our relationship with self? How, how does it affect this whole community called financial sobriety that is a journey that we're all on together? Simple example. Yesterday in uh, the Lafayette conference room, we were meeting with clients, and they have a lovely RV, and they are eager to get in the RV and go, except it's $1,000 to fill it up. They should just buy a plane ticket to Syracuse. <laughs> So the husband is like, no, we're not getting in the RV going anywhere. And the wife is like, well, what's the point of having the RV if we're not going to get in it and go somewhere? It sounds like that financial thing is affecting, affecting their, their relationship. Marriage, yeah. Right? 42 years of marriage. Wow. These conversations are very timely. And David Woods Bartley and the conversations around human connection. Yes. We... You know, had a ha-ha moment a couple episodes ago about, oh, yeah, don't forget that we're going through whatever, wherever you want to think we are with the pandemic. But we are in a pandemic. We're going through a pandemic. That isolation has caused all kinds of trauma. I mean, yeah. I, can, I could speak for a couple episodes just on the trauma that that's had on my parents in their 55 years together when they spent over a year isolated from one another, not even being able to see one another. Yeah. So... Our, our guest today, I don't think the timing could be any better. No. And, and when we think about just the ache that you and I are feeling in our lives, the heaviness and the darkness that we're observing 
that people are feeling around us, right? You, you and I get to come into this studio and, and heal together and process life together so that we can develop more resilience over time, which is going to be something we're going to talk about today, what resilience is and what it isn't. And I'm, I'm excited for that today. We're also seeing a lot of family members and people who love those who are suffering also struggling because they don't know how to help. So this conversation today is all about sharing more tools to help us with our own darkness, with our own heaviness and the feelings associated with that to develop more resiliency to the future as well as as we watch other people suffering around us, how can we how can we be helpful without contributing to the problem rather contributing to the solution? How can we help? Because I know at times I've tried to be helpful and in my helpfulness, I've only made the problem worse with someone in my life who's suffering. And other times it's just easy to just identify all the problems. And as, as Beth always likes to say, how about you help find some solutions? Yes. Well, we're not always qualified on the solutions side of things. Right. And some of our guests are very qualified and I can think of no one better qualified than Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn, who's with us today. What she's going to share, mostly starting with her story, which is extraordinary, and what that has led to, I think is, is just incredible. Oh, I am super excited to have you here in studio today. Let's, let's get Joyce in. Joyce Michael Flynn, the founder of MetaHab. Don't worry. Joyce is going to tell us everything oh, we need to know goodness. about it. Here's more about what we're going to learn about Joyce while she's here today. Did you know that in 1990, Joyce survived a death event that required 22 minutes of CPR just to come back to life. From that experience, Dr. Flynn has become an expert in resilience and trauma care. And from that, she's developed metahabilitation. Did I say that right? Perfect. All right. Perfect. Which really is, is this incredibly unique system of recovery to guide survivors toward post-traumatic growth, what we might refer to as PTG a little bit. I don't know if you ever yes. use the acronym. And in her new book, Anatomy of a Survivor, Building Resilience, Grit, and Growth After Trauma is story after story of how survivors of trauma and major life challenges use their inner strength to build resilience to move forward. Dr. Joyce, welcome into the studio today. Super happy to be here. Thanks for being here today. Grateful to be here. Well, and of course, yeah. that's how we start yes, everything. Yes, yes, yes. So what are you grateful for today? So I'm just going to take this off of what I already heard you talk about, and that is you talk about challenging the conventions, right? Yes. Challenging conventional yes. thinking. We love So that. I am grateful for being here because I have been challenging the conventional way we behave around adversity and trauma. And that is not to negate that it happens, but it is, as I like to say to people, what kind of makes my work unique. I not only want to help you deal with what these events did to you, but also what these events can do for you. Well, that sounds familiar. That's fabulous. Familiar only in the context of some of the languaging that we use around that oh. is it, whatever it is didn't happen to you, it happened for you. Yeah, nothing happens oh, really? to you, everything yes, happens, happens for, for you. you. Yeah, now, it requires, yeah. <laughs> it requires a different set of lenses sometimes to see it. Yes. Right. And that's what I'm excited to get into and talk about with you today. And, you know, one of the things that you can see, too, is you're talking about your what happened to people is 
that they can see certain things in themselves or you bring out certain things. One of the things that I love doing with people is to say, basically, I'm not teaching you anything. I am just helping you discover what is already in you. So as an example, I'm a professor at Sacramento State University, and I'll talk to students, and one of my favorite things when they're struggling, I just bring them into my office, and the first thing I say is, tell me your story. Tell me your story. And they'll tell this story, and then I sit back and go, do you not hear what I'm hearing? Do you not see what I'm seeing? You got this. You totally got this. Classic blind spot. And they just have not been aware. It's building that awareness in them, in us. Because let's all be honest, we didn't get here unless we had amazing multi-systems capacities to not only survive, but to ultimately and over time thrive. We would not be here. We evolved precisely because of challenging ourselves. And sometimes we bring on those challenges. Sometimes the universe introduces those challenges to us. But it is clearly then what it is you do with that. And that is how we have evolved. So so resilience is something that is naturally, instinctively part of the human experience. It's just a matter of how do we use it, how do we tap into it to get the best return on our investment, so to speak, long-term with resilience. Perfect, yeah. And so we have to... I, I think the thing I have come to understand is resilience is not necessarily a trait or a characteristic. It is a process. Tell me more. Well, when Actually, one... can I ask you, can I mm-hmm. kindly ask you to repeat that for the cheap seats? Okay. Resilience is not necessarily a characteristic or a trait. It is a process. So one person's not a resilient person compared to another person who is not. It's not a descriptive of one person or another per se. Right. It's, it's more, more of a journey. It's not an adjective. It's a verb. There you go. That's Precisely. what I was looking for. And the way you get to that action word is because we have calls to action, right? Things happen to mm-hmm, us mm-hmm. and we are called to act. And so in that engagement with that adversity challenge, you know, I kind of like to talk about challenges and minor adversities and irritations as sort of resiliency gym, right? Mm. Those are the things that get you stronger. So when you hit the big stuff, you right. go, oh, yeah, I got that. And you're, you have so many, we have cardiovascular systems, respiratory systems, immune systems, we have muscles. All our systems are keyed up to not only deal with that, but they get better when they are challenged. They evolve, they grow, they get better. We started out a bazillion years ago with a one-pound brain. Now we're at a three-pound brain. How'd that happen? Yeah, that just happened because... Yeah, mine's still at two, I think. <laughs> we, you know, it, but it happened because we became supreme problem solvers. Mm. We risked. We were high risk. Mm. We learned, we grew, and over time, we evolved. And the muscle grew. And absolutely. And the same thing happens when you engage people with adversity and trauma. 
These are not endpoints. These are beginning points to a new understanding, to a new life, to a new that. Are you always going to be the same or look the same? Probably not. But in that context of a new life, mm-hmm. I think we need to hear Joyce's story. Okay. Oh yeah, I have, well, I have, so my it's question, right. my question to you, Joyce, is: I mean, there are probably some people joining the conversation today who don't know you even as well as Jim and I do. Despite this is the first time we're meeting in person, what I do know about you is that for the last forty years, I mean, you are a classically trained nurse practitioner. Correct. Right. And what I'm curious about is, as we're sitting here talking about resilience and trauma, did that come about through training as a nurse, or was there something that happened in your personal life, your your professional life, that kind of changed your course a little bit or adjusted your course to where you've developed this specialty to where you got your doctorate in this exactly. area? T- tell me a little bit about that. How so did that happen? So that precisely so I, I think just from a point of view of growing up in a family of six and the oldest girl and all that I was pretty keyed up to do that and I was pretty gutsy on my own yeah. found myself through college figured that all out all that so I kind of had a little bit of that personality but about 30 years ago mm-hmm. now and I don't remember any of this but my husband and I were married this be our 42nd year of marriage all right. married phenomenal yes we have three children our daughters, Elizabeth, Catherine, and our son, Keenan. Elizabeth and Catherine were like five and six, and Keenan was not quite two. And I became extremely involved and loved marathon running and triathloning. Oh, wow. Love that. Love that. Participating yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so our children were on a swim team, and there was a championship swim meet. And again, I don't remember any of this, but we were at the meet, and there was, on a Sunday, a fun adult relay. Well, oh, yeah. for me, nothing's fun. It's all a competition. <laughs> sure. So a I wee grabbed, bit winning this. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. wee bit competitive, perhaps. <laughs> so I grabbed my husband and a couple of friends and said, come on, we're going to swim this, and we're going to win this, and I'm going to swim the last lap because I'm the fastest. I've been training a bunch, blah, blah, blah. So, again, this is just what people have told me, but we got in there, swam. It was at Jesuit High School, and I finished at the side of the pool that was 13 feet deep, and I guess I – and the timer said, do you need help out? This is what I've been telling. I said no, and I just – proceeded to sink to the bottom of the pool. And you don't remember any of this. This is there's as about the story a month, is told to you. Yeah, I, there's about a month of my... I kind of remember going out to dinner with some people on Friday night. Okay. But this happened on Before Sunday. Before this event. So I don't remember... Any yeah. of Saturday, any of no, Sunday. No, no, no. And... Like for a month. I don't remember wow. being life-flighted. I don't remember... Yeah, I'll tell you the first thing I remember. But anyway, so I sank to the bottom and they said to my husband, your wife's not coming up. And um, so he dove into the bottom of the pool and got me to the side. And fortunately, since there was a lot of kids there, there were a lot of parents there. And a couple of those parents, one was an ER doc, one was a cardiac nurse specialist, one was a respiratory doc. Um, one was, and so they proceeded to give me really good CPR at poolside. They landed a helicopter in the football field, and I was taken to UC Davis 
and I was on a respirator for about a week or so and then oh stepped in and all that. The thing that to me, and I talk about this a lot in my book, the thing to me that's the most meaningful was like I knew the docs who resuscitated me. I knew them. Mm. I knew who they were because I'm a nurse practitioner and I knew that. And I remember Bruce Gordon was like the head resuscitator. He's an ER doc. And I saw Bruce few months after, and I said, hey, Bruce, I heard the story that when they were resuscitating me and they got my heart going, the helicopter landed, and they said, okay, we're taking her and one other person. And everybody looked at Bruce and said, you're going. Mm -hmm. And he went, and I said, Bruce, I cannot believe you did. I mean, we know each other, our kids. That is a heavy thing. And he said, no, it was an honor that I was the one that got you to the hospital. Because my heart stopped again in the helicopter, and he got it going. Wow. And then fast forward, like, 30-plus years, I've been doing some work with ICU nurses at Sutter Hospital. And one of the managers said, oh, there's somebody here who knows you. And I said, I knew Bruce had a son, Nat Gordon, who's a physician. I knew him. We knew him. Good. And I said, is it Nat Gordon? And he go, yeah. Oh, my so goodness. So I'm giving this programming in the ICU, respiratory ICU at Sutter. And somebody said, hey, Dr. Gordon's here today. So I just walked up to him. And he's my daughter's age. I mean, they knew wow. each other. And sure. I just, like, we didn't even talk. We just embraced. And he just said, I was there that day. Wow. And to that full circle. So that's what I'm grateful for. I mean, can you believe I can do this? Wow. Can uh, you believe I have this capacity to do this? So, yeah, it's pretty yeah. heavy. Yes, I do believe it. Yeah. That's so, what's amazing is I do believe that. And, and I believe there are no accidents. Oh, no, there, there's just so many inspired, divinely inspired things that have happened and people that have been put in my path and things like that that I go, okay, okay, I'm here. I'll do it. I'll do it. What are you doing? You know. But just to go back to the story, I was in ICU for a while. I was out of ICU. They actually transferred me from UC Davis to Sutter. And the very first thing, the very first thing I remember sitting up in my hospital bed and I saw my brother and sister-in-law at the end of the bed. And I just looked at them and I said, where, where am I? And I'm sure I asked that question 3,000 times, mm. and they just looked at me and said, well, you know, you had this little event, and you're in the hospital, whatever, and they said, can we get you something? And my favorite meal is a cheeseburger, french fries, and vanilla shake. Mm. And I said, yes, yes, you can get me one of those things. They're round, and they have, like, yellow stuff on them, and they come with these long things that are hot, and you can put salt on them, and it <laughs> comes with this cup of white, cold stuff, and you can drive through places and get it. And that's basically wow. what I was left with. And at the beginning, like, I didn't recognize my husband. I didn't recognize my children. When I got home, I remember standing in my kitchen, and I'd ask my children, where the dish, you know, what did I used to cook, what I used to do? What was your inner dialogue like when those things were happening, when you, when you actually were aware that you weren't remembering what was familiar to you? What was Uh, that like internally for you? It's just a lot of fear because the thing that actually got me going more than anything was I was was very aware that I was messed up. 
And I was constantly, it seemed like, being told all the stuff I would never do anymore. And there's this one doctor I'll never forget. He's, I mean, in the hospital, he's standing in this unit, and I walked up to him, and I said, when will I be able to run again? Oh, you'll, you'll never run again. When will I be able to swim? Oh, you will, yeah, you won't swim again. Well, when will I? And I just looked at him, and I don't know how this came out, but I said, you need to stop doing that to me. Hmm. I am living what I can't do. You need to tell me what I can do. You need to leave. Your jo- you, know, you, need <laughs> right. to, you need to tell me what I can do. You need to ask me what I want to do, and your job is to get me there. Where would that come from? I don't know, but that is what transitioned in my head, I think, and the work I'm doing. And I turned around to go back to my room, and I said, you don't know who you're dealing with. I've been through a lot worse than this. I'll get through this. I'll do this, whatever. So I turned to go back to my room, and I go, where's my room? Where's my room? And the doctor said, <laughs> "The doctor said, oh, that's great. She's yelling at me, and she can't even find a room. But, you know, two years later, I actually saw that guy, and I said, hey, remember me? And he said, oh, yeah, I do. And I said, you know, I, I, you know, this is what I'm doing now. And he said, you are the bravest woman I've ever met. Wow. And was very – so I think to me with that all coming forward, I just lived a life for several months where I was like, I – what is going to happen to me? Hmm. How am I going to do this? How am I going to come back? What can I do? And, of course, you know, the fear of dying again. What if I die again? What if I do this again? How did, nobody really knew what happened to me. I finally – and that is part of this. They couldn't grasp onto a diagnosis of what actually happened. Okay. And I had a bunch of tests done and things. And so I went to see this doctor at Stanford or in the Sequoia Medical Center by Stanford, Dr. Dr. Roger Winkle, and he is a the guru of electrophysiology issues of the heart. Hmm. So he examined me and he did all this stuff and he went through all this and he sat down with my husband and I and he looked at me and he goes, well, first of all, I just want to say you are the luckiest person I've ever met. Hmm. I have never met anybody who had that much CPR who, number one, is alive, and number two, is sitting up and speaking to me. And he said, secondly, your life has changed forever. Your life will never be the same. And there are decisions that you need to make because I really wanted to run, and there was doctors who said I couldn't, and they wanted to do an implantable defibrillator, all this kind of stuff. And he said, but these are decisions that you can make. You need to get all the information, whatever. And then he said, and you need to go live your life. And that, he didn't have, he goes, I don't think unless somebody was in your heart at that moment will ever know what happened. But here's my thoughts. And so when we were driving home, I just had was so elated. My husband said, why are you so elated? You didn't. I go, but this just, the thing that had came to me was the notion that he gave me control and choice. And I talk about that all the time with people going through trauma, control and choice. When you give people back control, they'll make good choices. Mm -hmm. It was just every time people kept saying, no, no, no. That's not how you do this. Did somebody give that back to you or did you take it, the control? Well, partially, a little bit of both. Okay. So we 
found, who's been a friend of mine now, a cardiologist, Dr. Dan Van Hammersfeld, who's a runner. And he said, okay, let's just, let's not look too far in the future. And I like to do this with people when they're just starting out because they go, what, 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 what? I go, stop, take a deep breath. Slow down. Let's just deal with now. The future will come, but let's just deal with now. So he said, I'm going to send you to cardiac rehab. Awesome. Best thing he ever did. Of course, I was like 35 and the youngest person in cardiac rehab. But it got me into exercising again in a controlled environment where I could kind of understand and I could do certain things in a way that I was feeling comfortable. And then over time, I just started jogging again. And then I just started running. And then I ran with the heart rate monitor. And I figured out how hard my heart rate could go until I stopped and all this stuff. And then I, you know, you adapt and adjust. And I just thought, I'm not going to run a seven-minute mile anymore. But I can run. That's what I want. Right. And so all those things kind of come. So as that all evolved and I evolved and things evolved over time, I think my life experience in conjunction with my clinical life as a nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. I kept looking at it in a way where I would see patients of mine, read a book, see a movie or something, and you'd see people who went through horrible things. And again, not overnight, but over time, they not only survived, but they thrived. And they did it not in spite of what happened, but as a direct result of that. And I was fascinated with that. What's the difference? Because I'm, I'm fascinated by this too, and I'm, I'm getting more fascinated by it listening to you tell the story because in my head, what I'm trying to piece together and figure out is as I'm hearing you tell your story, what I'm hearing and seeing, right, because I'm, I'm here physically with you, so I'm watching your body language through mm-hmm. all this, is this incredible inner strength that you tapped into that somehow was created with a combination of the organic who you are as a person and how you were Mm -hmm. raised, as well as some of your professional experience. What I'm curious about is for someone who doesn't have a background like you, an upbringing like yours, the professional experience that you've had, how does one who doesn't know how to tap that inner strength? Because we've all seen People go down the path of resiliency from trauma. We've also seen people close to us where trauma has taken them out right. completely. Right. And obviously there, there's something there where both people possess the potential to tap that inner strength. One does, one doesn't. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to understand the differences there, what happens, what can happen, and how can people – if we are sitting in this conversation today at that kind of fork in the road, how does one begin to tap that inner strength to get on that path for resiliency? It's a great question. It's a loaded question. There's a <laughs> lot to unpack, but I'll just say it like this. I think the simplest thing that I do and when I talk to people is I shared with you that I'll say, tell me your story. Mm-hmm. So what I will do is have them tell me their story or I'll say, well, tell me something else. Is there something else that has been really tough for you that's been really problematic for you? And tell me about that. So then I have them engage into, well, yeah, when I was such and such an age, this happened. How'd you get through that? Mm. How'd you do that? Because here's the thing. So we have the motivation and we have the how-to, right? 
the motivation is unique to the time and place. The how-to is standard. And as an example, I'll tell you, I'm always monitoring my weight, right? The motivation for me to lose weight or stay at a certain weight when I was 25 is different than my motivation when I'm 40, is different when my motivation when I'm 60. But the how-to didn't change. Right. I always use Weight Watchers. It just works. It's good. I got it. I'm dialed in. I get it. So that's the thing that I talk about. Mm-hmm. So when people, I go, share with me. Actually, all this, too, changed the way I saw patients. I recognize, I said to them, I am not here to tell you what to do. I am here as a collaborator with Mm -hmm. you because I don't know what motivates you. I don't know what you want to come back for. I don't know that. That's all part of you. I don't know what you've done in the past. And so when we talk about that, and then that this comes in with my role as a clinician and as a researcher, when they tell me something like, well, I always like to, I'm in a group and I go back to, you know, I've gone back to that prayer group or whatever, and I'm going, fantastic. And let me just tell you, research has shown this, this, this. So that's a super good idea you're doing. Hmm. Keep doing that. So I pick out things that they do that I know through my own research and other people's research helps, and I point that out. Do, do, do. Because I go, I'm not going to tell you, why would I tell you do this or that? You're not into it. So you're, you're trying to tap into people's existing behaviors. 100%. To kind of blind spot where their inner strength is already starting to take shape. Or to say, that's not just a fun thing to do. That's, that's not got just a, a good idea. Yeah. Research shows when you do this, this is crazy helpful. Right. You're connecting the scientific dots to the behavior for them. And so they get into that. Yeah. And so the other the other thing that is very helpful for them, and again, this can change over time, and there is no question in my mind and other researchers, purpose. Hmm. They find a purpose. That purpose could be a grandchild, a dog, a uh, I want to run another marathon. I don't care. Find a purpose. And again, that can change. Sometimes there's grandiose purposes. Sometimes there are smaller purposes. But when people have found a reason to give back, that is a game changer. And how I tell them that. that? How, how do we find that? So as I sit here, listen to you, share that, mm-hmm. right? Find mm-hmm. a purpose. We are very fortunate. I feel very blessed that we've talked about before in studio the two most important days of our lives are the day we're born mm-hmm. and the day we figure out why. Mm-hmm. I'm incredibly grateful that we've been able to come to that second important day in our lives. For a long time, we didn't. I didn't. I didn't know what that was, what purpose was, what that looked like. And it seemed so grandiose and so far away and so unattainable for someone like me who lacked the inner strength to find direction How does somebody take that first step towards what is my purpose? Why was I born? What is that? Mm -hmm. Even if it is just something small to start with, does it start with hope? How do we get people to believe even that it's possible, Mm -hmm. right? Because I'm trying to think back to, for me, actually, I do know why my mindset changed over that. And it was when I met you. 
and you showed me what empathy looked like for the first time. Are you talking to me? I'm talking to you. You're talking to you me. You sitting over there. Me. Yeah, you. You, the guy with a thing. You know what I'm saying? That's where it started for me. I mean, David was in here recently talking about the key to coming through this darkness is hope. Where does hope come from? Connection. It comes from the doctor at Stanford that Joyce was sitting with. Yes. Because at that very intersection of the cardiologist, you can't, you can. Right. That doctor, unlike the one in the hospital, gave you permission to hope. Right. And if hope isn't in the room, well, what did he do? It's he not going to be. It's not going to be a good ending. It was the human connection through empathy. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, exactly what you did with me the very first time I met you. I think that was the first time that hope came back into the room where the possibility of purpose showed up. Is I mean, is that the key? Is that what it all boils down to? Well, I think that you know it. There, it's. Uh, is it pretty, as simple as that? Okay, and this is yes, and it. And I'm going to say yes. And when I, I'll say this because I was talking to my son about metahab and this whole process, and I said, you know, it's pretty simple. I don't know, Keenan, if it's going to, because it's pretty simple. He goes, Mom. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not worthy. It just means you've gotten to the essence of it. Hmm. And I think what you're both talking about is just this essence where this is shared humanity. Look, at here's the other thing, guys. You get to a point in life, you just get beaten up. Mm-hmm. People just get beaten up. So instead of going to the high school reunion talking about all the cool stuff you've done, you kind of go, yeah, I've been through this, this, this. And that is a shared humanity. That is like, yeah, we've been through stuff. Some of it was our finest hour. Some of it maybe not, whatever, but we have that. And the notion of hope is one that has got to be instilled. And it may be a sliver of hope. It may be just a little kernel of, I hope to get up tomorrow and walk a mile. I hope to do that. So, you know, the notion of having this grandiose idea of the purpose for my life, that's an ongoing Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. We kind of break it down to the purpose of today, and that eventually evolves into the purpose of your life. Were you able to do that first mile that one day because you knew there was somebody out there that cared about you? Did that help? Did that help give you the inner strength to say, today I'm going to get out of bed for the first time and go run a mile? Yeah, that's a yeah. Yes, I, I would say yes. And talking, it's kind of funny you bring that up because I'm talking to some other people here for some research that I'm doing. And the notion of having them, one is a woman who is at Columbine. She's a math teacher. Mm. She's a runner. And she told me about how she just couldn't get out of bed. And her husband just came to her bed one day with a pair of running shoes and said, get out of bed and move. And another woman, her brother was a firefighter, died in 9-11, and she just was so distraught. And her father, who is also a firefighter, came to her bedside several months later. She just was really having trouble. And he said, look it, I already lost one child in this. I cannot lose another one. So sometimes it's, again, just Mm -hmm. the motivation and the purpose just to put that foot forward and then 
Sometimes the hope comes after that. Sometimes the purpose comes after that. Sometimes it's hard to know which led. Yeah, but, the old chicken or the egg kind yes, of. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. but just somebody like those people mm-hmm. cared about them and said, you need, and the, this is the way I'm showing you that I care is to get up and get moving. And once you do that, you do start to see just a little bit in front of you then maybe a little bit more in front of you, then a little bit more. And then once you start behaving that way and people are supporting that behavior, well, all of a sudden, today looked a little brighter than yesterday. So that's why I always tell people, when I see people who have done these amazing things and that, oh, now I see my purpose. You know, Metahab was not my purpose when I was just trying to walk a block. Mm -hmm. My purpose was to walk a block. A block, right. And then things evolve, but you start shifting that mindset and you put as I found through my own research and those of others, you put yourself in the right place with the right people. And here's three things. Key, when I hear somebody's story and I hear them say this, I go, you're going to do okay. Three things. Number one, I understood, and this was a big thing for me, they learned how to ask for and accept help. Mm-hmm. That is oh, key. Yeah. And for me, that's I was like. That's a huge piece of willingness that's got to be there. It's huge. Because for me, it's like, I can do this. I can do I got this. I, that, that. But I had a little come to Jesus moment with myself one time where I went, wow, I've been through a lot in my life, but this is way bigger than anything I've been through. And if I'm going to get through this, I help. am going to ask, have to ask for and accept the right help. Number two. That's hard. That is yes. one of the hardest things in the world. Any and human it's not being the will asking. ever have to do. Mm-hmm. No, it's not, it's the, not asking. the asking. It's the receiving. It's the accepting. Yes, accepting the help. When I first came to you and asked you for help, that was. Well, you were kind of subtle. I was subtle, but I it was. Know, I didn't know you were asking me for help. Right. I was telling you my story. Yes. And kind of getting your opinion about the story, and you didn't give me an opinion about how I was living my life. Instead, you made a very empathetic statement to me that sounded something like this. Boy, that's that's got to be hard to live that way. And I didn't understand what was going on, but I felt this incredible connection like I was heard for the first time. Like, this guy gets it. Yes. He feels yes. me. He's feeling with me. And that gave me a little bit of hope, and it gave me the willingness to hear what was going to come out of his mouth next, which was, hey, kiddo, you got this thing pretty close. I mean, you chased the money to get the girl so you'd feel good about yourself. It all blew up on you. What would happen if we just flipped the script? kind of flipped it a little bit and resequenced the engineering of how you're living your life here? What if you learned how to have some unconditional acceptance for yourself as you are? Could you then give Amy and the boys what they really need from you? And wouldn't you think that might simplify your relationship with money a little bit? Mm-hmm. Right? I would not have been open to that if the empathetic connection didn't happen first. And it was fabulous because then you were able to tell me some of your own experiences, and I felt this connection like I wasn't alone for the first time. Mm-hmm. And that gave me the willingness to ask you for help 
I'm still working on the receiving part. No, you've done. I'm a, still not you've very done good an at extraordinary at, job at, of, at receiving help of accepting it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, receiving we're working some, on. Sometimes That's why the, Joyce is here today. The prescription isn't always, you know. Yeah, you guys all think that Joyce is here for like entertainment purposes and for our audience. No, 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 no. This is about me today. Joyce is here to fix me today. Awesome, right? Awesome. So I mean, so that no, accepting yeah. that accepting part is the bigger issue because I I also like those round things with the yellow stuff on top and the and the long hot things you put salt on and then the a little cup, ranch the cup Dip with a little the, ranch. the cold the little white. Creamy, creamy beverage. Yeah, I like those. I like them a lot. Uh huh. They don't like me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so accepting that they don't like me is, you know, in a lighthearted way. That's that's part of what I love hearing you say. So mm-hmm. let, please continue because yeah, that's num- powerful stuff. Number two. Number two. Number two. Then it builds in as you've suggested this notion. You start to feel hope. You you start to see it. And again. Hope can be just the littlest kernel, the little of something. You go, just hang on to that. Just hang on to the hope that tomorrow could be better or you're going to be able to go a step further or whatever. I mean, start small. And then the third thing is when I hear in their story that – and they don't necessarily use these words. You can just read through the lines that they have seen hope and a purpose. And the purpose is, you know what? I just decided that I needed to get my degree. Mm. I just decided that I needed to be there for my dog. I had to get up and give that dog a walk. I mean, there is just something like that. And again, these all change over time. But as you're listening to people and you hear this, that's why I keep saying, see, you've got, then you just like play oh, yeah. into this, just play into this, yeah. which is why I always say too, I am not here to tell you what to do. Right. You are telling me what you want to do. And I am here to support that and give you the background of why that's such a great thing to do. And I just love that whole notion of, I don't, you know, I give, li- you know, I have some lists, but I go figure out what what's in there for you. This is not my recovery journey. I have mine. This is yours. Right. What works with you. What it sounds like you also do for people, and maybe this is maybe this is not the case, but what, what I'm getting from this is people who lack hope where where I've been before, mm-hmm. I feel stuck when I lack hope. I don't feel like I have any options other than the current state of existence that I'm feeling right now. When I let that start to spiral out of control, Mm -hmm. it can go into some very, very dark places. Mm -hmm. If I don't have options, where might my thoughts take me? What you're doing for people, and I feel like we do this for people as well in our world of, of money and relationship, is you provide options. You help people go within themselves to discover that they have options. Mm-hmm. And then we get to explore those options together to uncover any blind spots about the consequences to each one of these options. And then mm-hmm. you allow people that dignity of making an informed decision about what's best for themselves and supporting them in that decision. Right. Right. Having options is a game changer for someone like me who can get way stuck inside of his head, stuck in trauma, hopeless, mm-hmm. feeling like there's only one option – and it's if I turn my wheel a little to the left, when that semi's coming down the highway, this all goes away. Mm-hmm. And man, that's not a place I ever want to go back to ever again. Yeah. So thank you for continuing to bring more hope into this room and showing us how we can tap into options. 
Well, a couple of things around that. So through my research, I have what I call characteristics and facilitating conditions. And Mm. so I always tell people, okay, I want you to check off what you have. And I've done so much like with addiction and dependency and all that. And they'll say, you want me to check off what I don't have? I go, no. What am I going to do with what you don't have? I'm not here. I'm not a genius. No, check off what you have. <laughs> right. And they start checking off. I got this, 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 this. That's where we're going to go. Hmm. That's what we're going to use. Play to the strength. And, start with what we and have. And what is very compelling to me is when I'll work with people and I follow them up a year later, they may have checked off a couple of things at first. And by the end of the year, they'll check, check, check all this stuff. And, I'll, and they'll say, look at this. And I'll say, see, I didn't teach you anything. I just allowed things to unearth the things that were already in you and now you're aware. But I will tell you too, when you're talking about this reminds me of the semi thing, I, I do remember vividly a couple of things where I did go back to work as a nurse practitioner and I just thank the Lord for my colleague, Dr. Dan Fields, who brought me back and just worked with me. Just he was so great. You know, I decided, you know, I went back to UC Davis where I'd gotten my NP training and I would say, Can I just sit in class? Can I just sit in class and listen again? So I started moving in that direction and Dan helped me. And we, our office was in Elk Grove, and I live over in East Sacramento. It's a while away. So I said something to him. I said, at the end of seeing patients one day, I was driving home, and I was like, I don't think I can do this. This is like six months later. I don't think I can do this. I used to have – I could see 20, 25 patients a day, like no sweat. And I was just really struggling with it. And this is just too hard. This is too hard. I can't do this. If I just drove my car into that embankment, it would be all over. Mm -hmm. And then something in my head just said, look at the people who worked to bring you back. Look at the people who spent their time working to bring you back. You don't have the right to do that. And then, boom, I just was like, okay. And that just, like, doubled down my efforts of, like, okay, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to do this. But I do remember because it's hard. Coming back from stuff, Mm -hmm. it's hard. I used to do every. I mean, the mom of three kids, and I had this, and I was on that committee, and a marathon runner, and work part-time. Super mom. And that was, at first— gone. Wow. And I had to rebuild that life. But here's the cool thing. When I look at it, when I started realizing what rebuilding life was about, I started seeing it everywhere. Oh, wow. And once I was looking at a, a, I was in a museum and looking at Picasso and I saw one of his paintings, Cubism. I don't know if you've ever seen Cubism, but it is basically the I've dismantling seen it. Yes, oh, yeah, yeah. dismantling of something known, and then they put it back together. Yes. So you go, oh yeah, that's an apple, that's a vase, that's a fiddle, whatever. But it's really, and I just stood there and I went, oh my god, this is what people do. This is exactly what people do. Their life shatters. But here's the thing. I'm telling you, you, you get to pick up those pieces and you can put them where you want them. So that picture is not the same. It's way more interesting. We've got Joyce Michael Flynn in studio today. She is the founder of Metahab, author of Anatomy of a Survivor, 
and we've got so much more to do. We're just warming up. We're just warming up. We, we've got so many questions about your process of meta-habilitation, but I want to push pause for a minute. Let everybody catch their breath. What you just said rocked me to my core, and what I'd like to do is have a second part to this conversation that we will launch soon. Soon. So, Joyce, you okay sticking around a little while longer to keep the conversation going? I'm going to, as Bruce Gordon said, it would be my honor. Awesome. And with that, brother, that's a wrap. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com. Thanks again for listening today. Here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety, I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt. Be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Brokers International Financial Services, LLC. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Gebhardt Group Incorporated does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance.